Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening where we continue our reflections into the book of Revelation. We are wrapping up chapter 4 last time and rolling into chapter 5. One of the things we talked about ever so briefly was the all-knowing God, and we really didn't get into it as much as I would have liked. I was driving over here this evening and, and thinking about that. You know, yesterday we didn't get a chance to talk about something I believe to be very important, and that is God as all-knowing. Like, what does that mean, huh? And what is the significance to God being all-knowing? For starters, (laughs) He sees everything that we do. There isn't anything that He doesn't see. It's not as if He doesn't know our hearts. No, He knows our hearts, and He knows what we do. He sees what we do. And so, as a people of faith, This ought to convict us to act and behave in such a way that would give glory to Him, that would be pleasing to Him, huh? I mean, this really ought to challenge us. I mean, think about it. If we are a people of faith and we are sinning and we know that God sees we are sinning, what does that do to us? We are going to have to account for this. This might not be something that changes overnight for you. But what I do want to encourage all of us to do is to start thinking about this more critically. What are ways in which I can change my life in the light that God is all-knowing? That there will come a day where we have that conversation with God in our particular judgment. And that conversation, while it be one that is very private, is one that we already know about to the extent that we know what we've done. And Jesus is going to ask us, why? So this is why we need to repent. Why have we been talking about repentance so much? Because, my dear friends, it frees us to become the person that we are called to be. You know, when we entangle ourselves in our sin and behave in a way that does not give glory to God, it binds us. It really does bind us. But when we don't have to protect the false self because we are humble, we are free. This is why Humility is indeed the fountainhead of all virtues. Okay, so this truth of God being all-knowing should be very important to us and to our spiritual life because it should convict us, convict us to live in a way that gives glory to God. All right, what else? Well, we were talking about the covenant, right? And I think I wrapped up last time with that great quote from John Paul II, a quote that Michael Barber highlights in Coming Soon. And I I want to go back to this quote and really pick up where we left off here. This is John Paul II. God in his deepest mystery is not a solitude, but a family, since he has within himself fatherhood, sonship, and the essence of the family, which is love. So again, as we talked last time, God is the primordial family of which all families are simply an image. God is the essence of family. God's work through the covenants of salvation history reflects who he is, who he is as family. 
bringing us into the life of the divine family. And since God is family, he seeks to make us family. What God does is always a reflection of who he is. And could we not say the same thing with us? There is always a focus on what we do versus who we are. And yet we never say that we are human doings, but human beings, right? So important and pertinent reflections as we begin to engage our principal subject matter for this evening. Now, what does all of this have to do with the book of Revelation? Well, Adam was originally created to be in a covenant relationship with God, right? To enter into the divine family life of the Trinity, but he fell. This is what we talked about a few weeks back. Salvation history is the story of God seeking to bring all mankind back into the covenant family. The reversal of Adam's sin starts with who but Abraham, who we're going to talk about a great deal this evening, through whom God will bless all nations. God will work through Abraham's descendants, the people of Israel, to extend his covenant to all men. And certainly the other major covenant we see is the Davidic covenant, the covenant with David as a kind of earthly blueprint of how God planned to fulfill his promises of old as the nations come to know Yahweh through the son of David. And so in the light of chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, we are encouraged to reflect into how Christ brings all the covenants to fulfillment in himself as the line of the tribe of Judah, the conquering Davidic Messiah. The book that is sealed in Revelation 5 represents God's covenant promises. Because Christ restores God's covenant relationship to all men, he is able to break open the seals, to break open the seals. And how about Revelation chapter 5, verses 5 to 6? Then one of the elders said to me, Weep not, lo, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So our Lord's ability to open the scroll, that is to fulfill God's covenant promises, depends on his Davidic lineage, right? which is implied by the phrase, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of Jesse. Many of us are familiar with David and Jesse because of uh, what we're going to be talking about here in a few months, Jesse's tree, huh? David was from the tribe of Judah, and Jesse was his father. The covenants in the Old Testament reached their climax in God's covenant promise to David to establish an everlasting kingdom through his son. So as Jesus fulfills the Davidic covenant, this covenant with David, he fulfills all of God's promises in the Old Testament. One, therefore, cannot overlook the importance of the Davidic covenant for Jesus's mission. And certainly, this will be something that becomes more clear as we move through these verses. How about that all-important verse 6, chapter 5, verse 6? Arguably, one of the most important verses in all of the book of Revelation. That verse that says, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing 
as though it had been slain. What is going on there? I mean, John probably expects to see the mighty conquer, right? The lion of the tribe of Judah. Instead, he finds a slain lamb. As so many scholars have pointed out, this at first glance appears absurd. The last animal we would probably associate with triumph is what we find, a little lamb. Even more, this lamb has been slain, right? (laughs) It's obviously a miracle that this lamb is even standing at all. Indeed, it is a miracle. And what do we call that miracle? The resurrection. Our Lord turns our idea of victory upside down. And this is what he does. He turns things upside down to turn them right side up. And when he does that, he gets us looking at things differently. This is what we mean by paradox, right? The word paradox literally translates as against expectation. We know that the whole Christian faith is paradoxical in the light of the cross. He conquers by suffering. And what does he say in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10? And then I will give you the crown of life. In fact, Isaiah prophesied that the coming Messiah would make himself an offering for sin as a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And it's important to notice that even in heaven, after the resurrection, Jesus still appears as though slain. He still bears the wounds in his body, just as he showed the apostles the nail marks on Easter Sunday. Standing before the throne of God as the lamb who had been slain, he continues to, what we would say, represent his offering to the Father for all time. He died once and for all, but continues to present himself as priest and victim in heaven. This is what is going on in the Mass. Yet, as Michael Barber highlights, we should never let the Lamb's humility fool us into thinking that he is some naive figure. No, the seven horns of the Lamb symbolize that he is almighty, since horns were a a symbol in the Old Testament for power. We see this numerous times if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 17, 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 11, Psalm 89, verse 17, all speak to this, and there's many other verses. Likewise, his seven eyes indicate that he sees all as one who is all-knowing, that all-important verse we opened up with. It may also be possible to connect this imagery to Daniel 7, where the fourth beast is described with horns and eyes. So Christ shows that he is the one who truly has authority and power, and he does so because he is the Lamb of God. I want to stay with this for a little while, this image of the Lamb of God, and I want to turn to the widely popular Archbishop Fulton Sheen as he reflects into this and just kind of go from there. This is Fulton Sheen. As Christ refused titles of external power, so also John refused titles which the Pharisees were willing to confer on him, even the greatest, that he was the one sent by God. And of course, we're talking about John the Baptist here, right? Now, reflecting into the opening chapter of the Gospel of John, Fulton Sheen writes this, The next day our Lord was in the crowd, and John saw him at a distance. Immediately, John reached back into the Jewish heritage of symbol and prophecy known to all his hearers. 
which incidentally, my friends, would have been very important. Part of interpreting Scripture is to get into not only the mind of the author, but how would have you received this in the first century? And for this reason, John's words are very important that come to us from chapter 1, verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God. Look, this is he who takes away the sin of the world. So Fulton Sheen reflects that John was affirming that we must not look first for a teacher, a giver of moral precepts, or even a worker of miracles. First, we must look for the one who had been appointed as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. The Passover was approaching, and the highways were filled with people driving or carrying their one-year-old lambs to the temple to be sacrificed. In full view of those lambs, what does John do? He pointed out the Lamb, capital L, who when sacrificed would end all sacrifices in the temple because he would take away the sins of the world. John, certainly, my friends, was parting voice of the Old Testament in which the lamb played such an important role. In Genesis, we find Abel offering a lamb, the firstling of his flock, and a bloody sacrifice for the expiation of sin. Later on, God would ask Abraham to sacrifice his own son Isaac, a prophetic symbol of the heavenly father sacrificing his own son. When Isaac asked, where is the lamb? What did Abraham say? In Genesis chapter 22, verse 8, Abraham says to to his son Isaac, my son, God will see to it that there is a lamb to be sacrificed. The answer to the question, where is the lamb of sacrifice, asked in the beginning of Genesis, was now answered by John the Baptist as he pointed to Christ and said, here is the lamb of God. God has provided the lamb. I want to go back to Genesis 22 to appreciate what's going on here, to really draw out the significance again of of, uh, Revelation 5, verse 6. This is Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering upon one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his ass, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the ass. I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And here we have the question. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Then Abraham put forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. 
And he said, Here am I. He said, Do not lay your hands on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, On the mountain of the Lord it shall be provided. Incidentally, my friends, while there's much to be said about those verses I just read, we should note that there in Genesis 22:14, where we read the Lord provided, that Hebrew is Jeru, Jeru, J-A-I-R-U, Jeru. Well, remember, all of this took place in the city of Salem. So we typically think of Jerusalem as the city of peace, but it is the city of peace where God provided the land, because at that moment it was no longer just Salem, but Jeru Salem, because it was the city of peace where God will provide the lamb. And as Archbishop Fulton Sheen noted, <laughs> that was very much a prophetic symbol of what? But God the Father calling his own son to carry wood upon his back up a mountain. Right? And as we have discussed before, that would be the very mountain that Abraham took his son Isaac up because they were where Mount Moriah. Well, this is where our Lord called his son to carry wood up a mountain, Golgotha, Golgotha. So very rich there. And all of this is to highlight the importance of the Lamb of God and why it was so significant that John the Baptist didn't just say, behold, the Prince of Peace or behold, the King of Kings or behold, the Davidic son. No, behold, the Lamb of God, because in the end, it was about fulfilling that overarching truth that he was to become a ransom for our sin. And this is why Revelation chapter 5, verse 6 is so important, so important. And something else here, I'm reminded of Benedict's words from his second volume of Jesus of Nazareth, where he's reflecting into, the, into Pilate's question, what is truth? And our Lord didn't respond with any words, but it was then that he picked up his cross and ascended Golgotha. And in that moment, as Benedict reflects, it is there where we begin to discover the power of truth and its relationship to poverty and the poverty of the cross. Earlier, we were reflecting about authority. And although he is a lamb, he is one who has authority and power. My dear friends, we become more powerful and we teach with greater authority when we boast of our weakness, when we look into the mirror and come to discover that we are impoverished without Christ and that only in Christ can we begin to discover the meaning of life. And so Benedict encourages us to reflect upon the importance of poverty, that in our own poverty, we become more powerful. We speak with more authority because it is only then that Christ lives inside of us. If we are caught up in what we think we can do without God, that is when we fall. But when we realize we are beggars before the altar, then we become the soldiers that God calls us to be. Okay. How about Revelation chapter 5, verse 7? 
And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. I like this Michael Barber reflex here. You know, how exactly would a lamb take a scroll from the hand of God? You know, hoofs, which lack opposable thumbs, aren't usually good for holding things, right? So here we see once again that we can't interpret the book of Revelation in an overly literal fashion. The deeper meanings of the symbols are what are important here, such as the image of Christ as the lamb, a sacrificial offering. Revelation must be interpreted as it was meant to be. It must be understood in terms of the symbols taken from the Old Testament. Thus, when people see things like red china in the red dragon of Revelation 12 or 666 as a reference to the most recent pope, that completely violates the original meaning of John. This is what I mean when I talk about the importance of going into the historical context and appreciating what the author is trying to convey to the audience at that time. All right? So important. Okay, how about Revelation chapter 5, verses 8 to 13? And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp, and with golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the scroll and to open its seals, for thou wast slain, and by the blood didst ransom men for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and hast made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all therein, saying to him who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Beautiful. The heavenly congregation sings a new song, huh? The phrase new song is often associated with the hope for the new exodus in which Israel would be returned from the exile by the Messiah who would restore the kingdom of David. We know what happened in the first exodus. Moses sang a song as Israel passed onto the other side of the Red Sea. In the book of Psalms, Moses reappears at the beginning of Psalms 90 to 100, which speak of the new exodus and the singing of a new song. If you were to go to Psalm 96 and Psalm 98, this is what we read. Here in Revelation, the elders stand next to the sea. So the elders stand next to the sea and sing the new song of the new exodus. Can you not hear the story of Moses? And not only the story of Moses, but this reality that is before us at this point in the book of Revelation to appreciate not only the new song, but this sense of a new creation and our call to participate in this new creation. The lamb who takes the scroll from the right hand of God has many echoes of Daniel's vision of the Son of Man, does he not? Receiving the kingdom from the ancient of days and like the authority given to the Son of Man in Daniel, the kingdom over which the Lamb rules includes all peoples, nations, 
and languages. Similarly, like the lamb, Daniel, son of man, receives glory. And it's interesting, you can translate glory in the Greek to honor. So Jesus fulfills this vision of the son of man through the liturgy. What are the 24 elders holding? But harps, sure, because that's what the Levites would hold in the earthly temples, harps. Thus, it is in the liturgy of the Eucharist that Christ bestows the kingdom to the church. This is why at the first mass, the last supper, Jesus told the apostles what? As my father appointed a kingdom for me, so do I appoint for you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. It was almost as if Revelation chapter 5 verses 8 to 13 would be written to better understand Luke 22 verses 29 to 30. So it is in the liturgical prayers of the Mass that we sing a new song as the kingdom comes with the King. My dear friends, the kingdom of God is about the celebration with the feast of the slaughtered calf. The prodigal son gives us insight here, huh? Because we are all prodigal sons who wish to be restored to that full family membership. And we are when we repent. And when we repent, we hope to hear those words, those same words that the father shared with his son. Let us celebrate with the feast of the slaughtered calf. Okay, and how about verse 14? And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Now, the word Amen is, again, very significant. And, and we'll close with this. The word Amen in the Greek means what? So be it. Or we can also say, so it is or truly. Behind it stands a Hebrew term that conveys a sense of firmness or reliability. The term amen appears frequently in the Old Testament where it is pronounced to confirm a divine oath or a curse. It was a word that would also be used to attest to the greatness of God or express a prayerful wish. In the New Testament, amen is a liturgical response arising from the congregation in both the earthly and heavenly liturgies. So the amen expresses a firm belief in God's revealed truth and often comes at the end of doxologies that extol his glory. So to say amen is to desire God's promises to be fulfilled and to trust that they will be fulfilled. Christ is called the amen because, of course, he embodies the reliability and covenant faithfulness to God. So very important as we, too, are made to reflect into why we say amen right before we receive the Eucharist. Okay, we'll pick up here tomorrow. Let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.